Back in uh, 1984, when I was a freshman in college, I made the decision to commit my life to world missions. I was at a missions conference with thousands of other college students, and with hundreds if not thousands of them, I, I stood up at the end of the conference and decided that I was going to give my life to the work of missions overseas. I was certain that that was God's will for my life. Four years later, it's now 1988, I'm a senior, and I have a decision to make. I could go overseas with Frontiers. They were very interested in me in being part of a team that they were sending sending to uh, actually the Middle East. Or I could stay in the States and work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of North Carolina, just down the road from where I had been in school. Here's, here's the key detail that will help you understand the decision I made. Adrian and I had only been dating for a few months at that point, but I was sure she was the one. But I wasn't sure that the relationship would survive me being overseas. So I took the job with InterVarsity. I decided to stay stateside and have basically been stateside, except for a brief sojourn studying in England, ever since. I don't regret that decision for even a moment. It is without doubt one of the best decisions I've ever made, maybe the best decision I've ever made, apart from following Christ. But here's the question. Did I miss God's will for my life? Did he have a perfect plan for me that I was pretty convinced was going to be overseas? And, and now here I am, and actually I'm really thrilled with his plan, but is it something that's fallen short of God's perfect plan for my life? Now I want to be really clear, the decision to stay and continue to date Adrian and get married and all the, all the decisions then that flowed from that, that decision was not a sinful decision. But what if I had made a sinful choice? This, this is, you know, just a hypothetical, but what if the night before my, my interview uh, with either Frontiers or InterVarsity, it kind of doesn't matter, what if the night before I got drunk and I showed up to the interview with a hangover? And they could tell I had a hangover. And they both said no. What if my desire, my sense that God's will for me was to pursue ministry, what if that pursuit of ministry was scuttled because of my own sin? Well, then, would I have missed God's perfect plan for my life? I imagine a few of you in this room have asked that question. Maybe after making what you thought was a perfectly good decision, or maybe after realizing that you made a terrible decision. We've all made choices, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them just merely pragmatic, but we've all made choices that in the making of that choice, the course of our life has changed from what we thought before that choice God had wanted for us. 
Does God's sovereignty apply to our choices? Does God's sovereignty apply especially to our bad choices, to our disobedience, even our folly? The same way that we kind of assume that God's sovereignty applies to our good choices. Now, if not, if God's sovereignty doesn't apply to our our sinful choices, our bad choices, then what does it mean that he's sovereign? If it does, well, then why does it matter that we sin? We've just started the book of Esther. A book that never mentions God, but is all about God's sovereignty over the ordinary affairs of life. Our choices, both good and bad, what we call God's providence. And this morning we come to a passage that uncomfortably presses the question about the relationship between our choices and God's plans. Does our sin Thwart God's will. Are we all to one extent or another simply settling for God's plan B or C or D for us because of the choices that we've made? Well, turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter two, Esther chapter two. Uh, Esther is right before Job. If you're using one of the Black Bibles that we provided in the pews and the chairs around you. It's found on page 433. Esther chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'm going to remind you where we are. Uh, We're in the Persian Empire under Xerxes I, King Ahasuerus is what he's called in the Hebrew here. The king has just, in chapter 1, deposed his queen for insubordination. And the advisors in that whole process, suggested that he find a woman more worthy than her to be his new queen. Well, as our chapter opens, a plan for finding that woman is put in place. And that plan is not only going to introduce us to two of the three main characters of this book. It is going to force very difficult choices on those two characters. We're going to see that sometimes they make good choices. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they make bad choices. But what we're also going to see is that God's providence is going to work through both good and bad. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is true for us as well. If there's a a main idea that I want you to take away from our passage this morning, it is this. Our hope is in God's providential care not our perfect choices. If I want to maybe shorten it a little bit more, make it even more alliterative, our hope is in God's sovereignty, not our sagacity. (laughs) Right? Our hope is not in our ability to make the best choices. But our choices do matter. We're going to look at this by looking at first some bad choices and then some good choices before we kind of wrap it all up. I want to start first with the truth that God is sovereign over our bad choices. Now, this is going to be the longer, the much longer of the two points 
in the sermon today. So just settle in for this first point and don't worry. The second point will not exceed it. Let's let's just read uh, Esther chapter two, beginning with verse one. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He'd been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven handpicked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerush in the palace in the tenth month, the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. We'll stop there. You see why this is going to be the longest point. It's the longest section I'm going to read today because we're only going to go to the end of chapter 2. Well, chapter 2 is the second half 
of a very long setup and kind of introduction to the main action of the book of Esther, which won't begin until chapter three. Finally, we're meeting two of the three main characters, Mordecai and Esther, but it doesn't start with them. It starts with King Headache. Ahasuerus has cooled down and he remembers Vashti. Perhaps he misses her. We're not told. But as soon as he remembers her, he remembers what was decided against her. And so, of course, he's going to remember that once he's issued an edict, it can't be changed. So there's nothing that can be done. Perhaps he has some regrets as well. We don't know. The author doesn't tell us. But what we are told is that his attendants notice. Maybe they notice the look on his face. Maybe they notice his affect, his demeanor, whatever it is. They notice that that he's remembering all this. And, and so they suggest, hey, perhaps now is the time to put Mimucan's suggestion into action. Let's hold an empire wide beauty contest. Let's find you. A new queen. She'll be the most beautiful girl in the land. We'll gather them from every province. You won't be limited in your choice. No expense will be spared in their beauty treatments and their training. You won't, you won't see them sort of all, you know, ugly and plain and fresh from the provinces. No, we'll spend a whole year buffing them. We'll spend a whole year shining them up. So that when you meet them, they will be at their best. They'll be under the expert supervision of Haggai, the keeper of the women. And the one that pleases you most will be your new queen instead of Vashti. That's basically what they're saying there in verses two to four. Now, the king gives it some thought. I don't think he thought about it very long. I don't think he needed to think about it very long. He thought this sounds like a great plan. And he puts it into action. Now, if you're counting, that's at least twice now that the king makes a decision based on what pleases him. So we're beginning to get an idea of the king's character. He's a vain man and deeply self-serving. But we're also beginning to get an idea of the role that he is going to play in this narrative. King Headache is the comic relief. He is easily manipulated by those around him. He is often in that manipulation made to look quite foolish, like the emperor's new clothes. And yet the power that Ahasuerush wields is very real and nothing to be laughed at. So let me just pause. I've said this before. Let me say it again. As Christians, particularly as Christians, we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for them whether we like them or not. We should pray for them whether we voted for them or not. Why should we do that? Because it is in everyone's best interest, not least ours, to be governed by authorities who are not driven by whim and pleasure like a hush but who are driven by a right concern for justice 
a right concern for the good of those who are governed. And just because we live in a democracy doesn't mean that we're automatically going to get that. It's often said that in a democracy, you get the leaders that you deserve. I think that's about true, which means we need to pray all the more. Now, it is these plans to have this empire-wide beauty contest. It is these plans that cause us to meet Mordecai and Esther. Now, first, in verse 5, we meet Mordecai. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, that genealogy doesn't mean anything to you, probably. But what it lets us know is that Mordecai is a distant cousin, many generations removed, of King Saul. And that's going to become important later on in the story. So don't forget that note, though it doesn't really come in at this point yet. Now, Mordecai is not his Hebrew name. It's his Persian name. It means a worshiper of God, and the male god of the Persians was a god named Marduk. So Mordecai, worshiper of Marduk, but more generically, worshiper of God. We're not given his Hebrew name. Now, he's either quite old, having been taken into exile with King Jeconiah. That would make him about 100, maybe a little more than 100 years old. Or or more likely, it's a reference to his father or grandfather being taken into exile. The point is to associate Mordecai with his Persian name with the exiled people of God. And all the questions, all the hopes for the future, all the worries about the present that the exile entailed. Remember, the question that, that presses on God's people in exile is simply, does God remember us? Is he still our God in exile? Are we still his people in exile? Especially now that some have returned to Jerusalem. As our story is going on, some very different events are happening in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and soon under Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's a sense with with this name, worshiper of God, it's in, in a sense, Mordecai's very presence in the story represents the question. Does God remember us? Are we still his people? Now, next, we're told that Mordecai had adopted Hadassah after her parents died. Hadassah is her Jewish name. It's her Hebrew name. It means myrtle, M-Y-R-T-L-E, myrtle. It's a it's a tree, but it's not just any tree. It's a tree that several times Isaiah associated with God's promise to redeem Israel after the exile. You can read about it in Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 55. And immediately it raises the question, is Hadassah the answer to the question that Mordecai represents? Well, we'll see. Now, unlike her adopted father, Hadassah has two names. She also has her Persian name, Esther. Esther means star. It's derived from the the name of the Persian goddess, the female god, Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. Once again, I think we're supposed to be thinking like Pilgrim's Progress, that the names here may or may not be the historical names, the names, though they are historical people, the names are letting us know the role that they are going to play in this narrative. 
Now, having introduced the main characters, the narrative resumes in verse 9. Along with many other beautiful versions from across the empire, Esther is kind of swept up into this. She's taken into the king's fortress and placed in a harem under the supervision of Haggai. And right away, we're told that Esther finds favor, much like Daniel had found favor in, in, the, in the Babylonian court years earlier. You see that there in verse 9, the young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. I think we're meant to kind of think of Daniel at this point. But unlike Daniel, she accepts the special treatment. She accepts the special diet that's being offered. Interesting. We're also told there in verse 10 that she kept her ethnicity secret. Why? Why was she keeping it secret? Because Mordecai had told her to. In obedience to Mordecai's Mordecai's orders, she sets about kind of deceiving everyone around her so that they'll think that not that she's Jewish, but she's just some other Persian girl. All the while, Mordecai is keeping watch over her from a distance. Verse 11. Now, I think it's kind of easy to romanticize this scene. And and, and perhaps you've heard Esther taught before, and it's given that kind of romantic spin. You've got all these young women, and they are living the spa life, right? They They are spared no beauty treatment that could be desired. Everything that they might want or need is given to them. They are pampered. But lest we misunderstand what kind of beauty contest this is, the author lets us know how the selection process will proceed in verses 12 to 14. So, yes, for a year, they are pampered. But much like a farmer's pigs who are being fattened for the slaughter, these girls, these young girls, are being prepared for a single night with the king in his chambers. They could take whatever they wanted. And given the age that some of these girls would have been, I would well imagine that some of them wanted to take their teddy bear, having no idea what lay in front of them. They had all these friends. They'd made all these friends. They'd spent this year together being pampered, But the evening that they left, they would never return. They would not go back to that harem with all of their young friends. No, the next morning after the king was finished with them, they would return to a second harem, a different harem, the harem of concubines. These were now women who could no longer return home. And they could no longer be married to anyone else but would live out the rest of their lives in a kind of glamorous desolation. Alone, maybe even to some extent ignored, unless the king happened to call for them by name. Friends, I wonder how many women in this room have had their lives changed damaged 
because of a man's sexual desires. Statistics would suggest that about one in six women in this room, about 17% of the women in this room have experienced sexual violence of some kind in their lives. It should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. There is no place in the church for sexual coercion of any kind, not in marriage, not outside of marriage. Women are made in the image of God. They are not merely objects to satisfy a man's desire. But let me also say that I believe this, this church, this is the best place to be for those who have experienced sexual violence and for those who have perpetrated it. Because the church is where the gospel is found. The church is where we learn of a God who loved us enough to die for us. And not only died for us, but now gives us his spirit and begins to remake us anew, no matter what we've done or what others have done to us. Friends, only the gospel can heal us from such wounds. And only the gospel can forgive us such sins. So if you're sitting here this morning and, and you are the, the victim of sexual violence or if you have been the perpetrator of sexual violence and you've never talked to anyone about it, I, I just want to offer to you the, the, the pastors of this church. Uh, I know we're men. Can't help that. But we and many godly women in this church want to be somebody who can listen. Be somebody who can begin to point you to the hope and the healing that is found in Jesus Christ. And if you're a man who has committed sexual sin, sexual coercion or violence of some kind against a woman... Again, I want to encourage you, if you've never talked to anybody about that, I want to offer the pastors are here. You need to talk to somebody about that so that the gospel can be applied, so that forgiveness can be experienced, so that perhaps restitution can be made. Sexual sin and being sinned against sexually can feel like one of those things that there's, that there's no recovery from, that there's no hope in. But I want to tell you that that's not true. The gospel of God is sufficient even for this. Now, having said all of that, I want to be really clear. This is not a text about sexual violence or, or women's rights. Herodotus, the contemporary historian of the Persian Empire, writing at the same time as Esther's written, Herodotus tells us that every year about 500 boys, young boys, would be gathered up by the government and castrated so that they could serve as eunuchs in the king's empire. 
it's hard to actually think which is worse. I don't think I could even make the decision. The, the, the point is, this is a text about brutality. The brutality of worldly, godless power. Across the world, and, and too often here at home, the fate and well-being of people, human beings made in the image of God, is decided not by the just application of law, but by the needs and the desires of the powerful over the powerless. From the unborn child in the womb to the residents of low-income neighborhoods that get torn down or gentrified without any input from them, to the mentally ill, to the poor everywhere. It is always those with more power, more wealth, more voice that will determine the conditions of their lives. Thus, it has always been. This is what worldly power does, whether it's governmental power or just personal power. It's not for nothing that that Daniel and Revelation both symbolize worldly political power as beastly. Fallen human government and the power it wields is a beast that devours And Christians especially, because we've been warned in the scriptures, Christians especially should never be so naive as to think we could take it up and tame it. And employ it to our own ends and not be affected by it. Rather, as Christians, we want to be those who speak up for the voiceless. That's what's so significant about this weekend as the March for Life is is going on in Washington, D.C., as churches around the world, but particularly America, pray for those who have no voice, the child in the mother's womb. We should be those who speak up for the voiceless. We, especially as Christians, should be those who seek to hold power to account We should especially be those who, when entrusted with power, whether that's official power or power in a family or personal power or power at work, we should especially be those who, when entrusted with power, are most restrained and humble in its use. You know, last week we saw Mimikin and the other advisors employ truth in service of power. They articulated a true principle, but it was merely to further their own selfish ends. We want to be just the opposite. We want to be those that use power in service of truth. Because that is what our God did. And so should we. Well, getting back to the text. Verse 15, when it's Esther's turn to spend a night with the king... It's pretty clear she's figured out how to play the game. She obviously didn't go first. She's watched girl after girl leave and not come back. She trades on the favor that she's won, and she goes with the sound advice of Haggai, 
the king's keeper of women, he should know. He goes, she goes with his advice in her head and in her hands. We don't know what she chose to take. We don't know. We're not told how she did it. But the king fell in love with her. Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. It's been four years at this point since Vashti was deposed. And finally, a new queen is discovered. That's the first discovery that's going to happen in this chapter. A new queen has been discovered. He puts the crown on her head. He holds a banquet for her. It's Esther's banquet. And he forgives everyone across all of his provinces, their taxes for the day. For the, just for the day, for the day of the banquet. It's really a Cinderella story, isn't it? Right from orphan girl to queen of the empire. Yeah, it's a Cinderella story, but uh, what are we to make of it? What are we to make of Esther's choices along the way? Because I don't know if you notice, but again and again, it's her choices that are highlighted. We're we're told especially that she obeyed Mordecai's advice. She she chose to hide her nationality. Now, what is the consequence of that particular choice? It will require her to break all of the food laws that Jews were supposed to keep. It will require her to break the Sabbath over and over and over again. She follows Haggai's advice. What does that mean? Well, we're not told explicitly, but at the very least, it means sleeping with a Gentile and acquiescing to marriage to a Gentile at precisely the time when the Jews back in Jerusalem are going to be condemned for doing the same thing. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to hold the men of Judah to account for taking foreign wives. When we first meet her, we're introduced to a Jewish girl named Hadassah. But what's a good little Jewish girl like her doing in a place like this? I'll tell you what she's doing. She's not being very Jewish. And let's not forget Mordecai. Right? The deception was his idea in the first place. She was just obeying his orders. And he must have known what that would have entailed for her, the sin that that would have led her into. Why didn't he take steps to protect her? He's her legal guardian. He's her adopted father. Why didn't he try to hide her away? These are the questions that later Jewish commentators would ask as they grappled with the book of Esther. In fact, the exceeding immorality of the choices of both Esther and Mordecai in chapter 2 would so bother pious Jews that when it came time to translate the Hebrew Bible into the Greek, what we know as the Septuagint, long prayers would be inserted into Esther's mouth and Mordecai's mouth to help exonerate decisions that otherwise were simply inexplicable. So what do we make of this Cinderella story? 
Is the, the gown she wearing a bit more smudged, tattered, and maybe even a little tawdry? Are the glass slippers that she's wearing befouled with dirt? Are they both guilty of seeing their chance for advancement and taking it, throwing fidelity to God to the wind? Or are they making the best choice they can, given the hand they've been dealt? These are uncomfortable questions. But it seems to me that discomfort, the reader's discomfort, is part of the point. The people of God live in the world and yet are not to be of the world. And every day we have to make decisions about where to draw the line between accommodating the society in which we live and compromising with the society in which we live. Given the implied contrast with Daniel, Maybe even the implied contrast with Joseph, who would rather go to prison than sleep with Potiphar's wife. Certainly given the explicit contrast with Vashti, which is made twice in this chapter, it's going to happen again uh, in, in verse 20. It is clear that Esther could have made other choices. Now, that's not to say those choices wouldn't have been costly. They, they might have been very costly. They might have cost her her life. She certainly wouldn't have become queen, but she could have made other choices. Should she have? I think it's really easy to judge both Esther and Mordecai from this distance and kind of from our abstract vantage point. But what I find so fascinating as I read and reread Esther is the author of Esther refuses to do so. He neither condemns nor commends. He simply observes. And he leaves the question of faithfulness to our own conscience. I think it's a reminder to all of us that the call is to live faithfully in this world, morally distinct from the world. But those decisions are rarely easy and clear cut. So what do we do when we find ourselves in a position like Esther or Mordecai? Where I've got an array of choices in front of me and none of them are good. None of them are easy. How do we move forward? Because forward we must move. I think this is where it is so important for us as believers to not try to navigate this by ourselves. This is where the counsel of wisdom from elders, from fellow church members, from godly parents is so important because it's always a matter of getting down into the details and figuring out what the actual options are and what the most faithful thing might be. It's always that. So don't try to navigate these sorts of situations by yourself. But also, I think this is a reminder to all of us to show some charity to one another. You, you don't know what a fellow brother or sister is facing. You don't know the difficulties of their situation or, or, or the details of the decision in front of them. 
Esther reminds us that things are rarely as black and white as we think, especially when we're on the outside trying to look at the inside of someone else's life. We don't want to make bad choices. As believers, we don't want to make sinful choices. But the reality is, we will. We have. But remember, and I'm not going to tire of reminding you of this, it will probably happen every chapter. The characters in Esther are not primarily moral examples for us. The main lessons that we will draw from this book, even though it will press these moral questions upon us, the main lesson that we're going to draw from this book is whether and how God is sovereign. Sovereign even over our compromises with this world. Sovereign even over the weaknesses of our flesh. Now, before we can really draw that lesson, though, we need to consider second and much more briefly that God is sovereign over our good choices. He's sovereign over our good choices. Let's pick it up in verse 19. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. All right, with the new queen discovered, the narrator's attention now turns back to Mordecai. For, for some reason, all the women who weren't chosen are gathered again. We're not told why. And the event finds Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. Now, don't think like garden gate or the gate that leads to the sidewalk up to your front door. No, the king's gate was a large administrative complex with many rooms in it. And the fact that he's sitting in the gate, not standing in it, means that he holds an official position in the king's government, probably serving as some kind of magistrate. Now, we don't know if he got the job because of Esther or if he had it already. We're, we're just not told. Either way, he is in the position to overhear an assassination plot by two of the king's bodyguards. Now, about 15 years after this event is recorded, that's exactly how Xerxes I, King Ahasuerus, is going to die. He's going to die at the hands of some of his bodyguards. But not today. Not today, because Mordecai was there. Mordecai overheard it. He told Queen Esther, who told the king, who had it investigated. When it was verified, the conspirators were executed. And the whole thing was recorded in the official annals of the empire. Now, what we would expect next in the narrative is Mordecai gets a reward for saving the king's life. But nothing happens. The scene just ends. And the contrast at this point between Mordecai and Esther is striking, right? Esther, we've just had this long passage describing how Esther participated in at least a year of pagan immorality, and she's rewarded. She gets to be queen of the empire. Meanwhile, Mordecai, who does 
the courageous and morally right thing, but surely hard thing to save the life of the king who is enslaving his people. He does the right thing. And what does he get? Not even a day off with pay. Nothing. Everybody just moves on. And right away, we're back to the question of our decisions and God's sovereignty. But this time, it's kind of from the other side. The problem of the apparent injustice of a good deed, unnoticed, unrewarded. I think this entire narrative, especially chapter 2, challenges the way we tend to think about life as Christians. I think we often assume a kind of Christian karma, right? So if we do bad things in this life as Christians, we're saved. We know we're saved. We're going to go to heaven. But if we do bad things, God's going to kind of like make my life miserable at least for a week or so. But, but if we do good things, well, rewards and blessings will follow. I, I think we often just walk around assuming that, that that's the way life works. But it's just the opposite here. And isn't it so often just the opposite in our own lives? Good choices, good decisions go unrewarded. Bad choices seem to escape consequence. And it makes it feel like life is just random. Friends, though it feels random, the message of Esther is that life is not random. It is completely under God's sovereign control as he works through both our good choices and our bad ones to accomplish his perfect plans. And the rest of the book of Esther is going to make that point in the rest of the book of Esther, which we're not at yet. So I'm not going to flesh that out yet. You got to come back next week and the week after. But it also needs to be said That God's sovereignty in placing Esther in the royal court through Mordecai's decision to deceive and Esther's decision to go along with the game, none of that justifies their sin. Nor does it justify ours. The sovereignty of God, even over our bad choices, never justifies those choices never justifies the sin. The Bible never teaches that the ends justify the means. Esther and Mordecai's sins will be laid to their account, just as ours will be someday. And whatever good decisions we make in this life, they are surely not enough to earn a reward from God. Because every good decision you ever made, every good deed you ever did was already your duty. And there's no extra reward for doing what you were supposed to do in the first place. So where does that leave us? Well, I think it leaves us at the cross of Jesus Christ. No other event in world history is such a mixture of good choices and bad ones, righteous choices and sinful ones. Here's how Peter described the cross on the day of Pentecost. He's speaking to to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and this is what he says to him. 
Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So whose decision was it to crucify Jesus? An innocent man guilty of nothing. Well, it was the sinful choice of lawless and wicked men, as Peter points out. But it was also the righteous choice of Jesus himself who prayed, not my will be done, but yours. And all of it was God's decision. His determined plan, sovereignly working through the wicked choices of some and the righteous choice of his son to accomplish the salvation of all who would put their hope in Jesus Christ. Why would such a wicked event bring about anything good? How would it accomplish? Well, it's because on that cross, the righteous Savior died in the place of his unrighteous people so that they would not have to die. The good news of the gospel is that, yes, there will be a day of reckoning when all of our sins will be held to our account. But if you are in Christ, that day of reckoning has already happened and he has already paid the penalty. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, This is what we want you to understand. Maybe you yourself have have grappled with these questions of if there is a God and he's in control, but wait, I seem to be making choices and how, how do I fit all that together? Look, this is what we want you to understand. That God is the kind of God who is so sovereign and so good and so loving that he could work even through sinful decisions to accomplish what you don't deserve your forgiveness, and your salvation. I would love to talk to you more about this. I'd love to talk to you about what it would look like to put your trust in what Jesus did for you rather than trusting that you can figure it out yourself. What it would look like to follow such a Savior. Please find me afterwards. Talk to me about this. Or or maybe you came with somebody that you know. Talk to them about this. Don't, Don't allow yourself to be distracted by how it all fits together. How you won't finally be able to answer all of those questions, I don't think. But you can know this for certain, that in Christ, God has loved you, loved you beyond your wildest imaginations, has loved you more than you deserve, more than you can ever imagine. And he invites you to receive that love. We've come to the end of the beginning of Esther. If you've been counting, three banquets have been held. Banquets are going to be one of the ways that the author structures the book. They come in threes. Most of the characters have been introduced. We've got one more to come next week. But we're left with people who are very clearly a mixture of good and bad, whose motives are often unclear whose moral positions are deeply compromised. The point at the end of the day is that God is sovereignly using both good and bad choices to accomplish his saving purpose. 
We can never use his sovereignty as an excuse for our sin, but we should never think that our sin can thwart his sovereignty. We read Esther and we're busy playing kind of moral checkers of right and wrong, good guy versus bad guy, who's got the white hat, who's got the black hat. Kind of failing to notice that while we're playing checkers, God is playing this kind of amazing three-dimensional chess in which all of our moves, good and bad, are being used to accomplish the salvation of his people and his own glory. So do not wonder whether you've missed God's will for your life. This is his will, that you believe in his son And by believing, have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and confess those things to the Lord God who made you and who loves you in Christ. Confess those things to him that need to be confessed. Lord God, we are so quick to judge others and the decisions they make, and we are so quick to deceive ourselves about the decisions we've made. And so we give you thanks that at the end of the day, it is the decision that you've made to save sinners through Jesus Christ that is the decision that matters. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to trust in your providential care of our lives. Give us faith to trust in your sovereign work of salvation through Christ. And then empower us to live as those who are not orphans in this world, but who have a father in heaven who is watching over every step we make. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.